Well, good morning once again to each and every one. Would encourage you to have a Bible handy this morning. If you looked on the back of the bulletin at the outline for this morning's lesson, you'll see that there's not much in the way of an outline there, other than maybe a very rough sketch. Normally I would flesh that out, but there's quite a lot to this morning's lesson and trying to figure out how to stuff it all in there on that page without running into a third page proved to be somewhat problematic. So you're going to fill it in yourselves. You're going to be paying attention, I hope, and writing down the notes as we go along. And of course, if you would miss something and you would need uh, one of the passages that we noted, uh, just see me afterwards and we can get you all caught up that way. Title of our lesson this morning is In the Beginning. We know, of course, that that is how the Bible begins in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. This past Wednesday evening, our brother Dave, who's not with us this morning, he's away preaching elsewhere, but he began a class in which we were reading through the first chapter of the book of Genesis and thinking about some things in relation to the creation account. And it kind of sparked some things within my mind as I began to think about all of those items. And so I guess if you pay attention to the lesson this morning, you'll be able to fill out all the questions that he has for his uh, first lesson there of that particular class as we can uh, pick back up with that, Lord willing, on Wednesday night. But there's a lot of confusion, obviously, in the world as to how things got started. And as you go to different schools of thought, different institutions that exist, you'll find all kinds of different ideas, different suggestions that men have come up with as to how everything that is came to be. But we're going to look this morning at what God has revealed about those matters. He has actually given us quite a bit of information about how all of this that we see around us, this existence that we are in, how it all began. So, if you have your Bibles handy, I would encourage you to have a bookmark or a finger stuck there in Genesis chapter 1 as we're going to be reading through the entirety of that chapter over the course of our lesson. The Bible, in more places than just the book of Genesis, obviously describes God's creative process and his power that was on display during those beginning days. In Psalm 33 and verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Describing here the power that God displayed in simply speaking and having things come into existence. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, it says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. In Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 15, we read there, He has made the earth by His power. He has established the world by his wisdom, and stretched out the heaven by his understanding. Now, I just had the thought as I was sitting there just shortly before um, coming up here to speak, thinking about God's power and his ability to accomplish his will. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could create something out of nothing just by our sheer will? Obviously, none of us are able to do that. And I just was thinking, actually, as I was partaking of the bread, thinking about that bread and thinking about how amazing would it be just if we could close our fist and create just a, a crumb of bread. I mean, even that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Something so small, maybe seemingly insignificant in comparison with many other things, but yet to be able to just create that from nothing. 
But yet God has done far more than breadcrumbs. He has created all that we see and experience. And so, if you have your Bibles ready there in Genesis chapter 1, let's go together and read about the first day. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And so the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, there are a number of things, obviously, that we can notice just in day one, things to talk about, things to refer to. In the beginning, in the beginning of what? Well, in the beginning of this physical reality, this physical universe, in the beginning of time, we could say. We know, of course, that God exists outside of time. In Psalm 90, in verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's hard for us to wrap our human minds around the concept of something that had no beginning, something that will have no end. Sometimes we get to thinking about those thoughts when pondering eternity with God and how we're told that that will be an experience that will never have any kind of final moments. It will go on and on. In Job 36 and verse 26, Behold, we read, God is great and we do not know him, nor Can the number of his years be discovered? In Revelation 1 and verse 4, John, as he writes there to the seven churches, he says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. It's interesting to note that God was not alone in his creative process. We read here just in the text concerning day one of creation that the Spirit likewise was present. And the Spirit moved upon the face of the deep, upon the waters that covered the earth that was at this point without form and empty. The Hebrew word that is used here in the text, that is translated spirit, is the Hebrew word ruach, which is often translated wind. And I find it kind of interesting as we think about the spirit, as we go into some thoughts from the New Testament, that often when the spirit is talked about or when his work is expressed, that wind seems to be involved or mentioned. We think about the day of Pentecost when the disciples were gathered together and the Holy Spirit came upon them there in Acts chapter 2. In verse 2 it says, Suddenly there came a sound from heaven, notice as, of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. As Jesus talked to Nicodemus there in John chapter 3 about being born again of water and the Spirit, he says there in verse 8 that the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Exactly how the Spirit brings about, manifests the will of God into a physical existence is is beyond our ability to truly comprehend, isn't it? Likewise, as Jesus makes the point here, the way that God operates on us when we are obedient to his word, 
applies that blood of Christ that was offered as a sacrifice, as an atonement. It's, it's beyond us to truly comprehend, well, how does that really work? Colossians 2 and verse 12, as it's speaking about baptism here, it says, buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him. Notice, through faith in the working or operation of God. We don't really grasp how all of it is working, how all of it is operating, but we know by faith that it is. The Spirit, as you think about His work from the beginning, as we're studying here this morning, all the way through to the end, and even today, has always been a translator. In the beginning, He translated God's words into reality. He moved as God gave command. He brought God's will into a spiritual existence. And likewise, he's able to take what is physical and translate it into that which is spiritual. Notice with me in 2 Peter chapter 1, as we think about the former first. Verse 19, talking about the prophets of old and how they were able to convey the will of God. It says, so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke, and notice the language, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? We likewise read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26 about how the Spirit even is able to translate our physical groanings into something which God can understand and hear. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We also know that Jesus was present in the beginning as this creative process of God began. Jesus, of course, is referred to as the Word. We go to John's Gospel in chapter 1, and we read there in verse 1. Notice the similarity, of course, to the account in Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 14, of course, of that same chapter, it is made apparently plain who is being spoken of here. For it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the beginning, God, more than just the Father, involved the Spirit, involved the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as they worked together to bring about all that we see. And he said, let there be light. And there was light. Before that was only darkness. We know, of course, that darkness is simply an absence of light. When you don't have light, that's what you're left with, is darkness. And God spoke light into existence, and he saw that it was good, we're told. It's kind of curious because as you think about Take that scripture back off there for a second. You think about where this light came from. Well, the sun wasn't created yet. We're not going to get to that till day four. None of the stars were created. None of the heavenly bodies. So where'd the light come from? Well, I think the best explanation of where the light came from is that God began to reveal himself physically, in the universe that he had now created. 
And we see evidence of that in several other verses that speak to God as being himself light. We know, of course, that that also applies to the concept of good versus evil as well. But in 1 John 1 and verse 5, we read there, This is the message which we've heard from him declare to you, that God is light in him, is no darkness at all. We think about Saul on the road to Damascus when Jesus revealed himself physically in his glorified state. And what did Saul see? He journeyed and came near Damascus there in Acts 9 and verse 3, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? And the response was, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so we see that this light, at least from what we can gather from other scriptures, seems to have been God himself revealing his presence in this dark, void universe that he had made. Now, I want to also take a moment here to think about how it concludes talking about this first day by saying the evening and the morning were the first day. What does that mean? You know, sometimes you'll hear people try and say, well, you know, these days that we read about here in Genesis 1, they, they weren't really days like you and I know a day. They were much longer than the 23-hour, 56-minute, 4-second day that exists today. But I think when we look at the evidence, that doesn't really hold much water. For one thing, the evening and the morning were the first day. If this was thousands or millions or billions of years, there would have been a lot of evenings and mornings, wouldn't there? We find that the same Hebrew word yom is used to describe day one and also to describe day four after God had made the sun to regulate the periods of light and darkness for the earth. Now also, we can notice even within Scripture itself, in Exodus 31, verse 17. Now here in the context, God is establishing the Sabbath day for the Israelites, part of the law of Moses. They were to observe that seventh day and to hollow it and keep it holy. And as he describes that here in Exodus 31 and verse 17, you'll find a similar thing in chapter 20 and verse 11. But he says, It's a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days... The Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Now, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to the Israelites, would it, if they had understood the days of creation to be these eons of time that had passed by. Well, what sense does that make to compare that with what you're telling us about this Sabbath day, this 24-hour period? We see that they would have to be the same for the analogy to make any sense. So don't get caught up in man's attempt to interject his own theories into the text of God's Word. It does not work. And there is no need to try and make it work, for that matter. Because even though people will tell us that if we believe in the Bible, that we do not believe in science, really it's, it's just the opposite. True science confirms the biblical text. We'll notice some examples of that as we continue on. And so then we come to day two, picking up in verse six of Genesis chapter one. God said, let there be a firmament, a word which simply means an expanse. Go ahead and put that there up on the, the screen for us to refer to. Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And thus God made the firmament, divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above. And it was so. And God called the firmament or the expanse heaven. And so the evening and the morning were the second day. Now as you read through there, especially with that 
strange word that we don't use all that much, used over and over again, you kind of maybe can lose track of what's being described here, but really it's not all that complicated at all. There are different heavens that are spoken of throughout the Word of God. There's obviously the spiritual heaven, where God exists, Isaiah 66 and verse 1. There the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? Where is the place of my rest? He's referring to the spiritual plane where he exists in that particular passage. But we know that in the beginning, as we read there a few moments ago, God created the heavens and the earth. So what heaven was created on day one? What would have been the expanse of the universe itself? And now we see on day two that the expanse of heaven, that is the earth's atmosphere, which kind of serves as a barrier between earth and outer space, is being established. He's taking the waters below and separating those from the waters above. Well, what waters above? Well, what are clouds made up of? Made up of water vapor. Gabe even knows that. (laughs) And so we see how God is separating and creating this expanse here on this second day. And so day three. In verse 9, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. So now the earth is no longer going to be void. It's not just going to be a ball of water. Now we're going to see dry land formed and some features created. So it was so, the end of verse 9 says, God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth bring forth grass, and the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. So several things taking place here on day three. We see that not only is the dry land created and the seas gathered together, but we also see that plant life is created. All the different kinds of grasses, all the different kinds of mosses and trees and flowers and all these different things. You know, it's interesting as we think about this concept that is spoken of here, how each of these kinds of trees or plants is going to produce after its kind. And we begin to see that language used as God begins to create other forms of life as well. Each is going to produce after its kind. And that's a concept that we see Throughout the scriptures, it's used to talk about even our own selves, human beings, and how we are going to produce what is within our hearts. Jesus talks about this concept in Matthew chapter 7. We have this up on the screen here, verse 15. He's here talking about false prophets, and he says, They will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And how will we know them? It's going to be by what they produce, right? You see how that all matches up with the basic principles of what God created in the beginning? You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes? Well, we know that they don't because God established that a grapevine is going to produce grapes. Likewise, we don't gather figs from thistles. And so every good tree... He says, bears good fruit, but a bad tree will bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear that which is good. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, he says, is cut down and thrown into the fire, and so by their fruits you will know them. This basic concept was established by God himself in the very beginning. We think about our own salvation. 
and how the concept of a seed is often mentioned when we think about how we are born again. First Peter 1 and verse 23, notice the language Peter uses here. He says, you've been born again, not of corruptible seed, not talking about the seed of an apple tree or some other kind of seed that we could go out and observe. But this is an incorruptible seed, he says, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Jesus likewise used seeds, that analogy, to talk about the word of God and how it is able to produce after its kind. Again, the parable of the sower. Luke chapter 8 and verse 11, the parable is this, the seed that Jesus had been talking about that fell in all these different kinds of soils, he says, it is the word of God. And in verse 15, he talks about the seed that falls on the good ground. And what happens? As it falls on the good ground, this is describing those who hear the word with a noble and good heart. They keep it, and then they bear fruit with patience. It produces after its kind. I just want to interject an interesting thought here as we're on the subject of the word of God itself and what it can accomplish. We had noticed earlier Psalm 33 and verse 6, and I'd like to read it again to just note the language used here. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Now notice Second Timothy 3 and verse 16, reading from the English Standard Version there, all scripture is what? Is breathed by God. It is the same power that spoke everything into existence, that has spoken this word into existence, that through it we can know of God's grace, we can know of his power to save us from our sins, to be transformed by the blood of his Son. That's a point worth noting, I think. And so we come to day four. Here in verse 14 of our text. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. So now God is creating these physical lights throughout the universe to be for the earth. And that's an interesting point to note. He didn't create these things just so that other life out in the universe somewhere could behold them. He created them for the earth. The purpose was so that the earth could keep track of time and seasons. He says, let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and the night, to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw again that it was good. The evening and the morning were the fourth day. You know, it's really quite remarkable because when you study astrology and you study some of these heavenly bodies that exist and just how vast they are in scope and size. I mean, they just dwarf the earth. Even our own sun is dwarfed by some of these other bodies that God made. But yet to stop and think that this is just his handiwork. And it's there for us to impress upon us the glory of God. To remind us of the power of the one who made all of this and who wants to know you and me. Isn't that amazing? Now, he talks about this greater light and this lesser light. Well, what do you think he's talking about there? Well, he's talking about, of course, the sun, which is the greatest light for us here on the earth because it's the closest to us, and the light to rule the evening, which reflects, of course, the sun, is the moon. So God established all these things and the orbits of all these things throughout the universe for you and I, for the tracking of time, to declare the glory of his handiwork, to remind us of his presence. 
Day 5 begins to be described in verse 20 of the text here. God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. And so God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind. And every winged bird likewise according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And so the evening and the morning were the fifth day. So a lot happening on day day five, where we read about all the birds of the air and all their variations, all the various species that he made. Likewise, all the creatures of the oceans and the seas. You know, it's interesting to note on that point that this would have likewise included things that we no longer observe, even in our modern day and age, creatures that have gone extinct, that we can only see fossils of, that we can only read about, uh, even in places such as Job chapter 41, where there a creature is described that is so ferocious, so formidable, that no one would dare try and cross him. It's described as the Leviathan. And you know, one of the interesting things about that particular creature that's always stood out to me is the fact that it talks about him breathing fire. And sometimes critics of the Bible, they'll read through that and say, well, that's that's nonsense. You know, that shows you right there that's all just fairy tales and make-believe. But is it? Is it so hard to believe that God created a creature capable of breathing fire? You know, one of the interesting things you'll find as you study the history of virtually any culture across the face of the earth is you'll find that They all, at some point in their history, have tales of things that we would maybe refer to as fire-breathing dragons or dragons of some sort. Well, where do you think all these people across the globe in different places and different times came up with such an idea? If you do any honest analysis, you'll find that all of the so-called myths and legends of any culture, are based upon some truth, something that was observed, something that at some point in time was clearly seen. Is it hard to believe that God could create something capable of producing fire? I'd like to submit this little fellow to you for consideration. Now, he's not quite as scary-looking as the Leviathan, and we don't know, of course, exactly what that looked like. We just have man's interpretation. This little bug doesn't look very ferocious at all. It's called the bombardier beetle. But if you do some studying about that particular beetle, you'll find that when it's threatened, it can create an explosion from its posterior. And Get your giggles out there, I guess. It says it has a special gland which mixes two chemicals together that cause an explosive chemical reaction which expels a spray of boiling steam and chemicals with a loud popping sound. The temperatures that it produces with this boiling liquid reach over 100 degrees Celsius, 212 degrees Fahrenheit. It can produce about 20 explosions in a minute's time. Now, if he can do that with something on a minute scale, he certainly can do it with something on a much grander scale, can he? Is it so hard to believe when we have creatures that can produce their own electricity? When we have creatures that can produce their own light from within their bodies? You see, God has left us all the evidence we need to know and to confirm that everything we read is indeed true. We don't have to relegate these things to the realm of mythology or the realm of man's uh, fantasies. This is, this is reality. This is what God is capable of, what he created in the beginning. And so we come to day six then 
A lot more to read concerning day six. Starting there in verse 24, it says, God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And so the rest of the creatures that God saw fit to make, beyond the birds and the creatures of the sea, were made here on the sixth day. And while we could stop and think about the vast variation of all those different kinds of creatures, the day wasn't over yet. In fact, we might say it was just getting started. Because in verse 26, we read about the ultimate creation of God. We read about you and I. Verse 26 says, says, God said, let us. Who's the us? Well, we talked about that before, didn't we? The Holy Spirit. It was his son who were there with him. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon it. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish over the birds, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. We're going to stop there for just a moment. We'll come back to the remaining portion of day six in a moment. God made us in his very image. What does that mean? Really, I think there's two different aspects of that that we need to consider. The first, of course, is that we are a spiritual being, unlike the rest of his creation. We have a soul and a spirit that will live on forever. And I think that is, of course, the primary way in which we are made in his very image. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth, and notice, forms the spirit of man within him. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7 says, The dust will return to the earth as it was. Speaking of the dust from which we were created, as you get into chapter 2, it details all of those things. But notice the spirit of a man will return to God who gave it. And likewise, I think it's safe to say, based on the evidence of Scripture, that not only are we spiritually in the image of God, but even our physical Nature reflects God himself. Consider some different examples with me here. God is spoken of as having hands. Psalm 48 verse 10, it talks there about your hand is full of righteousness. He is spoken of as having a mouth. Matthew 4 and 4, man shall not live, Jesus says, or quotes rather, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth. Of God. God is spoken of as having a face. In Psalm 80 and verse 3, the plea there is restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. He's spoken of as having arms and a voice. In Job 40 and verse 9, have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? We can think about Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, and he was revealed there in his spiritual form. But yet, notice John describes similar attributes to our own physical bodies. He says, I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice as the sound of many waters. 
He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. What an honor and privilege to think about how we are created in the very image of God himself. First Corinthians chapter 6, we're reminded of what a responsibility that is for us. In verse 19 there, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, speaking of the price that Jesus paid. And so therefore, notice he says, Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, here speaking about humankind, he says, we are his workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, for good works, he says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is why we were made. This is why we bear the image of God so that we can bring God true glory and honor as he so rightfully deserves. Now, I want us to come back and notice a few other things from the text here. Verse 29, you notice that God said as he spoke to man, and really to all other living creatures as well for that matter, he says, see I have given you every herb, Verse 29, that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth, every tree whose fruit seeds, or whose fruit yields seed. And to you it shall be for food. And also, not just for man, but to every beast of the earth, to every bird, to everything that creeps on the ground, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And I want us to note one interesting thing here in verse 31. God said, indeed, it was very good. Now, we've seen all throughout the study this morning, at the conclusion of each day, after God made all that he made, he would say, it is good. He creates mankind, thus finalizing his creative work, and now he says, it is very good. It's complete. It's perfect. And so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now, in addition to that point, I want us to also go back to what is talked about there, starting in verse 29. One of the interesting things about creation at this point in history is that there was no death. Death did not come until after the curse of sin. In Genesis chapter 3, we can read about that. And likewise, the permission of mankind to consume, kill for food, other creatures that God had made that did not come till after the flood of Noah. In Genesis chapter 9, we read here in verse 1, that God blessed Noah and his sons and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Naturally, that would be a necessary command given that he just wiped out his creation given their sin. And so now the earth again needs replenished as it did in the beginning. But this time he says, notice, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that moves on the earth, and even the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, notice, even as the green herbs, even as that which I had initially provided. It's also interesting to note That at this point, as you would go out and walk across the fields or traverse the forests that God had made, you wouldn't find yourself getting cut up by briars or thistles or thorns or anything that would be dangerous or harmful. Likewise, those things did not come until after the curse, which was brought about by the sin of mankind. It's described here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, as God spoke to Adam. He said, because you've heeded the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. It wasn't cursed before, but now it's going to be. 
He says, In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. And so then we come to the seventh day, which is described in the first few verses of chapter 2 here, Genesis. Verse 1 there says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on this seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because in it, pardon me, he had rested from all of his work, which God had created and made. Now it's interesting to to note here, as we read about God resting here on the seventh day. It wasn't that God was worn out. It wasn't that God had just done so much that he needed to take a nap. (laughs) God does not wear out like we as human beings wear out and get tired. But rather, the rest spoken of here in this passage suggests that which we would see in musical notation. You come to a rest as you're reading through a page of music, and what does that mean? It means you pause. You cease from making noise for a moment, however long the rest suggests, before proceeding to then go on with the rest of the song. And so it is here on this final day that God was not fatigued, but rather he stopped, he ceased, he paused as he observed all that he had made and saw that it was finished, that it was very good. I've often had the thought, sometimes people get caught up in these scientific dating methods, carbon-14 dating and some of these other types of things, and they'll say, well, see, we we tested this rock, and it says it's 1.4 billion years old. So how can the Bible be true, right? That's the case that will often be made. I want you to put yourself on the earth at the moment in history in which we have arrived here on this seventh day, and just think about what you would see. You would see fully formed trees and rocks and features of the earth. You would see a mature man and woman there in the garden. You would see all of these animals that would appear to be at least several years old, at the least, right? All these fully mature plants and all these different things and You imagine you take one of these scientists who's so caught up in these dating methods and you plop him down on that seventh day. And he's going to go up to the tree. Well, this tree looks like it's... Let me do some testing here. Look, coming back, it's millions of years old. It's amazing. But how old was it? It was a couple days old. You see, God created a mature universe. He created everything perfectly so that it would benefit his primary crowning jewel of creation, you and I, mankind. Sometimes people get caught up in the the concept of, well, light takes a certain amount of time to travel from this distance to that distance. So how do we explain how we can see the light from the stars? Because God created a mature universe. He created it so that man could initially, from the beginning, see everything that he'd made. He didn't need to sit there and wait billions of years for the light to travel to the earth. He just made it as it is. Now you think about that concept and you think about how many problems that solves that are often posed by those that would be opponents of the scriptural text. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, we walk by faith, not by sight. We weren't there to observe all these things, but we have the evidence And I told you that we noticed some interesting points of evidence and time would fail us to exhaust them all, but I just selected a handful of things for us to think about here. Some facts, some things that have been established that were established by God and His Word far beyond man, quote-unquote, discovered them. The fact that the earth is round. Sadly, you find if you pay attention today that there's a sad little group that has resorted back to the concept that the earth is flat. I don't know what what their issues are there, but we know from established observance and from what God has said that the earth is indeed 
round. Isaiah 40 and verse 22 talks about God sitting above the circle of the earth. The water cycle was spoken of by God in Job 36, far beyond the time that man would nail all of those processes down. It says there that he draws up drops of water, which distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly. Ocean currents were established by the psalmist in Psalm 8 and verse 8, where he talked there about the paths of the seas. In fact, it was that very scripture that motivated Matthew Maury in the 19th century to go out and to study these things and write the first book on oceanography. For the longest time, we thought the sun was stationary in the universe. But in fact, it has its own orbit throughout the cosmos. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 19 and verse 6, its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other. And so while we were not there to see these things ourselves, we can know that they are true by the things that we can observe, the things that God has revealed to us. And so we have this picture, if you will, of, of paradise. It was very good. Everything was perfect and complete at the end of that seventh day. But as you continue reading, it doesn't take very long, does it, before man messes it all up. We know, of course, that Satan comes onto the scene, and using his craftiness, he deceives both the woman and the man into going against the commandments of God. And for a brief moment, it seemed that all was lost. Seemed that all that God had perfected was just brought back to darkness again. You know, even in the very beginning, even in Genesis chapter 3, believe it or not, hope was seen. The very first prophecy of our Messiah, of Jesus the Christ, the Son who helped bring all of this into existence, but who would later come to this earth and die having lived a perfect sinless life was given to us. In Genesis 3 and verse 15, we read there, as God spoke to the serpent, as he spoke to his adversary, the devil, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, at the time that that was uttered, that was a mystery. But in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, we see how the mystery is explained. There Paul wrote through the Spirit, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Notice how it lines up. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Oh, Satan bruised his heel, all right. He persecuted him, scourged him, had him mocked and spat upon, had him beaten, had him nailed to a tree. But the Son of God crushed the head of the serpent. You go to Hebrews chapter 2 in the last portion of the chapter there, and it talks about how coming in the likeness of flesh living that perfect life and dying and overcoming death, he led captivity captive, if you will. He gave us the ability to be free from the curse of sin. 1 Corinthians 15, notice the language here in verse 21 beginning. It says, Since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, he says, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ being the first, he was the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. But then afterward, at his coming, those who are Christ will likewise rise. And that will come at the end, when he delivers the kingdom, his church, to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. 
with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment. Let's read together here, starting in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him. And notice this, before even the foundation of the world, before even he began to speak, before he said, let there be light, God knew that we would need a Redeemer. And Jesus knew that he would be that Redeemer. Even before the foundation of the world, we were chosen. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Verse 7, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him that in him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory, in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. What an amazing picture we see as we consider the story that God lays out for us throughout his revealed word. I hope that this study has been beneficial to you this morning. So many different things to note as we go into a study of the very beginning. So many pictures to see, so many Wonderful realizations to come to as we think about how even Jesus himself and the plan of redemption had its foundations in what we read about in Genesis chapters really 1 through 3 and on. We're going to conclude with just a few more passages this morning. First, I'd like us to note 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. Notice the language here. Paul says, it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. God has been giving us light from the very beginning of time. Ultimately, he gives us spiritual light. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, notice here, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, how do we get in Christ? Galatians chapter 3, 26, 27. By faith you are all sons of God, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so if we're in Christ, if we've obeyed the gospel, notice the result. And think about everything that we've looked at this morning and just let the weight of this come down upon you. He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We see the power of the gospel as we contemplate the power of God's creation in the beginning. Finally, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. As we've looked at all these things, I think it's apparent that God wants us to know him. God wants us to be with him. And so as we conclude this morning, I want us to think about the fact that Jesus is pleading with you even this very morning to invite him in, to render obedience to him so that you can Be a new creation. And you can have hope of eternal life with God. 
Revelation 3 and verse 20, Jesus himself is speaking. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Do you need to accept that invitation this morning? Do you need to open the door of your heart? Render obedience to the Son of God. We would invite you to take advantage of this opportunity that you now have. We're going to stand together and sing the song that's been selected. And so at this time, if there's anyone who needs to come forward and express those needs, please let it be known.